If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Judges. The book of Judges. We'll be in chapter 17 and 18 this evening. Bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in North Hills, PCA, Meridianville, Alabama. I appreciate y'all praying for us uh, this evening. And I texted our head pastor Adam, and he mentioned he prayed for y'all this morning in their service as well. And it's just great to be able to to have fraternal relations and to see uh, Christ's body being bound together in love even across denominations. So it's a joy and privilege to come and preach here. Uh, We've been trying to arrange it for a few few times now, uh, but I've been providentially hindered, so I'm glad to be here now um, with you all. Before I get into our passages this evening and read it, I I do want to say just a couple things. Um, This is one of my favorite Old Testament stories. I love it. I teach Old Testament to ninth graders at Westminster Christian Academy, and it's just, it's a delight uh, I love teaching them the Old Testament. So they're at a great age where they're old enough where you can kind of go a little bit deeper, um, but they're not so old that you can just be super esoteric and, and use lots of big words. You have to, you have to simplify it, uh, which is great. It's a great challenge for me, and it's, it's lovely. It's a good, good thing. Um, I enjoy it at least. They, uh, they enjoy it too most of the time, except when I have to give them quizzes or memory verses. Um, but I always love it when we come to this passage in class. Uh, it might seem a little odd. There's lots of good and wonderful Old Testament stories uh, for it to pick as your favorite. And this one might seem an odd one for me to have as my favorite. But this story in particular has shaped my thinking of God uh, and who God is and my relationship with him more deeply, more profoundly than almost any other. I heard a sermon on it many years ago that really gripped me and, and through that and thinking about this passage and teaching it, it's helped me and changed me. It was a, a catalyst that really helped me form my thinking and dealing with grief and loss. It's given shape to my ministry aspirations and what I want to be as a pastor. And it acts as a constant reminder of what I am to be about and the dangers and pitfalls that abound. So I want to share some of that with you this evening. It's a bit of a long passage, so bear with me as we read through it together. Judges 17 and 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. 
I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give to you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zor and from Eshtol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to him, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. When they came to their brothers at Zor and Eshtel, the, their brother said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise, and let us go against them. For we have seen the land, behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter and possess the land. As uh, soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given into your hands a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtol, and went up and camped at Kiriath-Jerim in Ju- Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone out to scout the country of Laish said to the brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod and household gods and a, a carved image and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. They turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate, and the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, and the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 armed, uh, men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, and the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man, or be to be a priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priests and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? The people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household." And the people of Dan went their way. When Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priests who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. 
They had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they built the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word and for the stories you've given us, uh, these accounts of your people in ages past and their, their sins and failures and at times their triumphs and good, good deeds. And we pray as we consider this story uh, that you'd give us insight as we look at Micah and the Levite and the Danites and see why you would have this preserved for us, see why you would inspire the author of Judges to uh, keep this account for us today. Lord, we know, uh, we know, as Paul says in Romans 15, that whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction, Lord, that we might have hope and encouragement through your scriptures. And so we ask that your spirit would be at work this evening, helping me to explain them well and to charge and encourage us and helping us all to listen with a tender heart, Lord, not to harden our hearts, but to hear your word this evening. Be with us in Christ's name. Amen. So it's a long story, and it's, a, it's an odd story, but it's a, a good story. As I mentioned, this is one of my favorite stories, and I want to explain a little bit why that is. The book of Judges picks up after Joshua has died and details the story of Israel between Joshua and Saul when there was no king or central ruler in the nation. And for decades and centuries, God had shown his faithfulness and goodness, delivering them from the Egyptians, bringing them into the land of Canaan, clearing out the Canaanites, giving them his, his law and commandments, detailing exactly what he required of them, and being with them, giving them victory and conquest and a place and a home, making them his people and his kingdom. And now after decades of unending examples and reminders of God's faithfulness and goodness, God's people are left wondering, what's next? It's a vulnerable time and a dangerous time. And what we have in the book of Judges should serve as a stark warning to us. After Joshua's death, the people quickly abandoned the Lord turning to other gods and doing what's right in their own eyes, as we've heard over and over again in this passage and throughout the book of Judges. The book of Judges is marked by a cycle of idolatry and God's judgment, then the people's repentance, and then salvation by the hand of a judge, which is why it's called the book of Judges. God continuously shows his compassion and justice, but the people continually abandon the covenant he had made with them at Sinai. Most of the stories in the book of Judges uh, deal with the big epic events of this time, wars and generals and victory. But here at the very end of Judges are two smaller scale stories that give us a snapshot of what normal life was like in this time of sin and rebellion, a time we might feel uh, some kinship with at times, looking around the world, looking around everything going on, we might feel a little... Uh, familiarity with the time of Judges. It's a good reminder of a, uh, to us of what God requires. Our passage this morning is one of these small snapshots that give us some insight into some of the dangers that are ever present, and it also serves as an encouragement 
for us to seek a better way. My theme this evening for my sermon is that God is not a means to our own ends. And I want us to see that. I'm a good Presbyterian. I've got three points that all start with the same letter. We've got the problem of pragmatism, the purpose of worship, and the promise of a king. So we're going to look at the problem of pragmatism, the purpose of worship, and the promise of a king. Firstly, let's consider the problem of pragmatism. This is really a story about pragmatism, and it's everywhere in the story. I originally had named this point the prevalence of pragmatism uh, because it's just all over in this little story. I don't know if you noticed this as we read through it, but uh, everyone in this story is awful. Everyone in this story is just not a good person. Uh, We often like our stories to have a hero to have an example to follow, a good guy, maybe with some character flaws, maybe with some, you know, some room to grow. But generally, we want a hero who's a, who's a good person at heart. But this story has none of that. They're all awful and terrible people. We're introduced to the main character, Micah, first. And the very first line of dialogue from Micah is him confessing that he's stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. This isn't, you know, Micah taking just a 20 that his mom had lying around. This is a serious theft. You know, it's hard to put ancient silver prices in today's terms, but, you know, we could think maybe if you went and bought a silver coin, uh, I looked it up, it's 20 to $30. So in our terms, if someone were to steal 1,100 pieces of silver today, you're looking at thousands of dollars, tens of thousands even. And like I said, it's hard to... To, you know, to, to really understand what the value would have been back then, but at the very least we can say this isn't a little theft. Not that little thefts are any better, but this is a huge theft from his mom. So we learn that Micah's a thief who doesn't mind stealing from his own mother a huge amount of money, and he doesn't even give it back because he sees how ups, uh, upset his mom is. He gives it back because his mom won't stop complaining about it to him. She keeps talking to him and cursing about it. And finally he gets fed up and said, I I stole it. Here, stop complaining. He doesn't have any kind of sense of real repentance. At least we don't see that in the text. And his mom is no saint either. Uh, uh, Micah's mom, uh, rather than being upset with her son, um, rather than rebuking Micah, praises him for restoring the silver to her. Now, I don't know if you've ever stolen anything from your mother. Uh, I have as a child. Um, I have stolen, you know, some things from my mom as a kid, and I have gotten found out. And my mother's response was not Micah's mother's response. Uh, my mother's response was she was glad that I confessed and that I gave it back, but I still got a spanking. I still got in trouble. And yet Micah's mom doesn't. She doesn't take Micah's sin seriously. She praises him for restoring the silver to us. And while he certainly should have restored the silver, she doesn't seem to take his sin seriously. She's permissive and passive. She tolerates evil and sin in her son. And on top of that, she takes this silver and gets it made into a carved image and a metal image. We know that she knows the Lord. She uses his name. Uh, But she's either ignorant of the law concerning idolatry and the second commandment and the creation of images, or 
more likely, given her permissiveness of Micah's sin and the fact that verse 6 says everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, she doesn't really care that much. She just wants to do what she wants to do in God's commandments and laws notwithstanding. Micah's mom is passive and doesn't care about the law. Obviously, Micah's no good. Not only is he a, a thief stealing from his mother, already breaking the Eighth and Fifth Commandments, he goes along with his idolatry and makes it even, even worse. He makes a version of a priest's uh, uniform, garment, and ephod. Uh, he makes his own household idols, his own household gods. This probably would have been Baal, Asherah, just different gods that they would have chosen as a household that aren't uh, Yahweh. He ordains one of his sons as a priest. He's essentially setting up his own little household tabernacle in his backyard, just not only worshiping the Lord, but sprinkling, sprinkling in a little Baal worship, a little household god worship, figuring out what he wants for himself and his family. He's treating worship like an all-you-can-eat buffet in a sense. Now, I love all-you-can-eat buffets. I love going there and being able to get a little bit of this, a little bit of that, being able to build my perfect plate. And that's exactly what Micah is treating God's worship is like, figuring out what works best for him, what's right in his own eyes. And we know Micah knows God's commandments. We know he does because in a little bit he's going to get excited when when the Levite stops by and he's happy to have a Levite because he knows that's the tribe that the Lord had commanded to be priests. So he has a knowledge of the law. He knows what's right and wrong, but he doesn't care. He knows what he's doing is wrong, but he wants to do what's right in his own eyes. God had commanded that they weren't to make idols or images, and yet Micah does. He commanded they were to offer sacrifices and worship at the tabernacle, but Micah sets up his own shrine, and God had commanded the Levites were to be priests, but Micah ordains his son, and Ephraimite, as his priest. And then we get introduced to the next major character, the Levite. And we read and learn at the end of this story that this is actually Moses' grandson. Uh, and it's meant to be a powerful revelation that the author waits until we see how awful and how terrible this young Levite is before revealing that, by the way, as it says uh, in verse 30, that Jonathan, the son of Gershop, the son of Moses, were the priests to the tribe of Dan. And that this is the great Moses' son, falling into all this awful idolatry and all this sin. We learn that this Levite's left Bethlehem, and he's seeking a place for himself. Now, the Levites were given lands and uh, tithes, and they were supported by the people of Israel uh, so they could focus on learning the law and teaching the people and caring for the people's spiritual needs. And yet, this Levite has left his normal place and is seeking a place for himself. He's not content with what God had provided for him. And he's trying to see if he could do better than what God had given him. He's malcontent, searching for his own place. And he comes to Micah and this abominable mixture of idols and worshiping the Lord alongside household gods in ways God had said not to do, which he, as a Levite, would have known. He would have been schooled in the law as a youth. He would have known that this is all wrong, this is all bad. And instead of rebuking Micah, instead of 
correcting Micah. Once an offer of ten pieces of silver and a suit of clothing is on the table, he's happy to abandon what God had said. The text tells us that he's content to dwell with Micah, that this suited him, that he was happy here. He wanted wealth and prestige, and now he has it here. Instead of just being one Levite in a uh, a big crowd of Levites here, he's someone important. Here he has uh, responsibility. Here he has power and sway and wealth, and he's happy to take the Lord's name in his mouth and offer pronouncements as a priest of God while engaged in this awful affair. There's a bit, an, there's a bit of irony as Micah is more than happy to have this Levite as his priest because, as he says in uh, verse 5, or excuse me, he says in verse 13 of chapter 17 that now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. He, Micah stupidly thinks that this will make his idolatry work because now he can whitewash it all with a thin veneer of legitimacy. And it's actually through the Levite that Micah's whole racket is going to come crashing down. Uh, the people of the tribe of Dan, as we read, hear the Levite's voice. They either recognize who he is somehow, or more likely they recognize his accent. Uh, we know that different tribes and different areas had different accents. Um, in fact, that's where the term shibboleth comes from because uh, I believe can't exactly remember who it is off the top of my head, so don't quote me on this, but I believe it's the, the Benjaminites who can't say the shh. They say Sibboleth instead of Shibboleth. Um, but there were different accents among the people of Israel. And evidently, they hear this person's voice and either know him or recognize his accent. And the Levite's the one who tells them all about the household gods, all this silver and this little shrine, which leads to them taking it all later on. And despite the Levite being content to dwell with Micah, notice how quickly the Levite was able to content himself with the idea of a new position with the Danites, with a little rationalization, as soon as he could really start to wrap his mind around the fact, you know, it is better to be priest to a whole tribe rather than just to one family. As soon as he came to that idea and came to that conclusion, he abandoned Micah, even going so far as to help the Danites rob and plunder the little temple. Of course, there's the Danites themselves who had been given an inheritance by God. They'd been given a place they were supposed to go, but it was too hard for them to take from the Canaanites who were there. They found it unsuitable to their liking and were trying to find some place better than what God had given them, trying to find some place that was easier to take, ignoring God's commands, ignoring what God had given them to take and saying, We need to find a place that's right in our own eyes. And then, of course, stealing from Micah. Everyone in this story is awful. And what's the root of it all in this story? What's behind it all? The root issue in this story is Judges 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. They're defining what right is wrong and wrong are by their own parameters, by their own judgments. They're taking it upon themselves to be the arbiters of true and false, of good and evil. And how do they determine what's right or wrong? Well, the guiding principle and philosophy that these people use to determine that is pragmatism. Will it get me what I want? Does it work? Then it's good 
and right. Micah wants to have a shrine. He wants to have a priest. He wants to have the Lord bless him and do him good. He wants a good life, a good harvest. And so he does what he thinks is going to get him what he wants. The Levite wants to make his own way. He wants a good paycheck. He wants prestige. He wants honor. He wants to be somebody. And he wants to use God as a way to get what he really wants. The Danites want an easy life. They want a home. They don't want to have to work hard to get it. So they do what they want to get them to their end. They desire, and so whatever will bring about these desires, what works is good. Pragmatism is the guiding philosophy of the book of Judges, and in many ways it's the guiding principle of our time as well, at least one of them. Think of all the evil and wickedness in our world today and in our own hearts and how pragmatism sinks in. I mean, why wouldn't you engage in gluttony? Don't you want to eat good things? Don't you want to satisfy every craving? Don't you want to be full? Why would you honor your parents? Don't you want freedom and autonomy? Don't they get in your way and put constraints on you? Why would you rest on the Lord's Day? Don't you know there's so much to get done? And don't you want money? Why would you stay faithful to your spouse? Don't you want affirmation and excitement and pleasure? Why wouldn't you tell the truth? Don't you want to please people to avoid judgment, to get ahead ahead in life? Don't you want these things and other things? Don't you want a good life? We want. I want. I want. Whatever it might be. And sin promises a quick and easy way to get what we want. And so the pragmatic choice is to sin, to ignore God's commands and laws and precepts. They just get in the way of what we really, truly want. Now, as Christians, or those who profess to be, we, we might know better, just like Micah and the Levite, we might know we shouldn't go wholesale into awful and terrible things to get what we want. But maybe if we can cover our sin with a, and pragmatism with a veneer of obedience, we'll be okay. If we say we're serving God, surely he'd be okay with a few idols. We're just doing our best. Sure, God tells us how to run the church and gives us laws and principles to guide us, but those really aren't getting us the numbers and the, that we want or the kind of people we want. It's not reaching our end, whatever that might be. So let's use different means, different tactics, worldly wisdom, but keep it close enough to avoid seeming too idolatrous. Sure, God tells us how to live in his law and commandments, but that's just Old Testament stuff, and we're under grace. I'm not a glutton. I'm just enjoying the good gifts God has given me. I'm not a gossip. I'm just sharing prayer requests. I'm guilty of that one at times. I'm not ashamed or coward. I'm just trying to avoid unnecessarily offending people with the gospel. I'm not fill-in-the-blank. We want what we shouldn't want. And so we take and eat the fruit of sin because it promises us the quickest and easiest path to what we really want. Pragmatism is all over this story and all too often all over our own hearts. Micah wants, the Levite wants, the Danites want, we want, and so we take the pragmatic path and do what's right in our own eyes instead of doing what's right in the Lord's eyes. But though it's easy and quick, it's the wrong path as we consider what it means to worship the Lord in our lives. So what is the right path? A good question to ask in this is, 
Well, what is the purpose of worship? Not just worship in the sense of Sunday morning or evening, but worship in the sense of following God, serving Him, loving Him. Why do we serve God? What's the purpose of worship? One of the chief symptoms of pragmatism in this story and in our own lives is that these people are not truly serving God, but rather using God as a means to an end. None of them really care about God or his commandments or his glory. They love him just about as much as we might love a vending machine that gives us the snack we really want. Or as much as I love the drill that helps me put a shelf together. Yeah, it's handy and it's useful, but at the end of the day, it's only value was in helping me achieve what I want. God only had value and authority to the people in the story in so much as he could get them what they really wanted. And the question for us this morning, or this evening, excuse me, the key question is this. Why do we follow God? Why do you follow God? Why, why come here? Why do we come to God? For blessing? For him to do us good, as Micah says. For happy, whole life full of good things. For health, for family, for joy, for peace, for respect, for forgiveness, for heaven, for purpose. What do we come to God for? Why do we serve him? You hear the commonality in all those answers. For. We come to God for fill in the blank. And when we answer in these ways... God is really a means to an end. And what we really want, what I really want, isn't God, but whatever's at the end of that for statement. I worship God, I follow God for happiness. Well, happiness is what I really want. The Lord just happens to be a convenient tool to help me get what I really want. Now, I hope we'd never say that I worship peace, I worship health, I worship a fulfilling life, and God's my tool to get it at least not out loud, but we see what our God truly is when we don't get the things that we want. When illness crops up, when our dreams are threatened, when our hopes are dashed, when our way is impeded. We certainly see that in the story of Job, where Satan comes to God and says to God, does Job worship God for nothing? Satan's implication there is that Job only worships God because God gives him such good stuff. He had sheep, and camels, and wealth, and family, and security. And Satan says, Job's only worshiping you because you give him what he really wants. Does Job worship God for nothing? Of course, we know the story. God calls Satan's contest and gives him authority over Job's sheep, and wealth, and even Job's own children who die. Job's left with nothing, Even his own body turns against him. His own flesh turns against him. Both his literal flesh and the flesh of his flesh, his wife, they all turn against him. He's left with nothing, and yet he worships God for God. When disaster strikes and God isn't giving us what what we want, what will we do? What will we do when God takes things from us? our health, our wealth, our joy, our family. My wife passed away March 1st of this year. It was hard to sit in that, to deal with that, to continue to deal with that, and to 
say to God, Lord, why? Why? But to really wrestle with this text and wonder, what do I worship God for? Why do I love him? Why do I serve him? What are you going to say when everything you want is taken from you? Pragmatism would say, well, it's time for a different tool. It's time for something else. God isn't getting you what you really want. Put him away. Leave. Abandon him. That's just good pragmatism, but it's poison for the Christian life. There's only one reason for us to come to Christ to serve him. It's because he's worthy. Because he's not a means to an end, but he is the end. He's what we want. We come to him for him. We come to God for God. The answer, Job didn't worship God for nothing. He worshiped God for God. We come to God because he's worthy. And as a byproduct of following God, we get peace and we get heaven and we get joy and we get all sorts of other wonderful things. But those are the wrapping paper around the gift that is him. This is the mindset of the great men of scriptures. As we already mentioned, Job, after losing everything, said, though God slay me, yet I will trust in him. The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's the mindset uh, mindset of Habakkuk, who not only said, but sang, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. And it's the mindset of our Lord Jesus, who on the night was, when he was betrayed, went into the garden and prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, not my desires, not my wants, not my ends. Your will be done. Even though it costs me everything. Even though all of my life be given up for these people who rebel against you, who hate you, your will be done. We don't serve God for our ends, but because he's worthy of us because he is God and there is no other. The purpose of worship, of following God, of serving him is not peace or happiness or blessing or any other thing. It's not the Lord doing us good, as Micah said. It's not 10 shekels and a change of clothing. It's not an easy way or a place of our own. The purpose of worship is the one that we worship. It's getting him, knowing him. The author of Judges keeps reminding his readers throughout the book and in the story that everyone is doing what they're doing because they're doing what's right in their own eyes. Because there's no king in Israel. And the author's hope is that when the king came, people would act right. When the king came, all this pragmatism and sin would be dealt with and done away with. And Saul came, and it was kind of better for a little bit, kind of, till he went insane and crazy. David came and things were much better. They were good. David ushered in a, a real golden age and helped with this. Solomon came and he was good until the end. Went a little off the rails at the end. And after that, the kings mostly, with a few exceptions, 
failed. They gave in to pragmatism and idolatry and sin. And this earnest hope and promise that the king would fix the issue failed, at least for a time. But not ultimately, as we know. The book of Judges keeps reminding us there is no king in Israel. That's why all this stuff's going wrong. That's why there's no... Uh, that's why all the people are doing what's right in their own eyes. But brothers and sisters, there is a king in Israel today. We have the true king and the true Israel. A king who rejects pragmatism and using God as a means to an end. A king who prayed in the face of profound suffering, as we've already said, not as I will, but as you will. will. A prayer that Micah and the Levite and the Danites would never pray a king who calls us to a hard path, a difficult path, a narrow path, but a path to him, of denying our desires and our ends and taking up our cross and following after him. We take this path because at the end of it is our king. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Hebrews 13, uh, verses 11 through 14. The author there says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus suffered, also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Let's go to him, not to goodness, not to blessing, but to our king, to go to him, a king who is worthy, a king who loves us, a king who will do us good, a king who will give us honor and prestige, a king who will give us a home and a place to be, a king who invites us to come and cast ourselves at his feet and get redemption and adoption and love and riches of grace and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but not in and of themselves, but in him, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, that all, everything, all the goodness of heaven, all the blessings we receive are wrapped up in him. And he will give us himself. The story ends with Micah robbed of his idols and silver and the Levite. And rather than the Lord doing him good, Micah's left defeated, humiliated, and empty. And such is the end of pragmatism and using God as a means to our own ends. But it's not the end of following our king. I remember reading uh, or hearing a preacher or author say one time, I wish I could remember where, that he said something along the lines of, you come, if you come to Jesus for joy, you won't get it. If you come to Jesus for peace, you won't get it. If you come to Jesus for forgiveness and to go to heaven when you die, you won't get it. But if you come to Jesus for Jesus, you'll get him and all the rest too in him. So brothers and sisters, let's be done with following in Micah's path, the Levite's path, the Danite's path. Let's give up our own ends, our own desires. Let's give up taking God's name in our mouth and using him as a vending machine to get what we really want. And let's follow the king God has given us in rejecting pragmatism and saying with him, Lord, this is what I want. And we can pray for what we want but also recognizing, Lord, ultimately, not what I will, but what you will. For you are worthy of my life and service in and of yourself. Let's follow them in this way. If you would, pray with me 
as we ask God to help us and grant us the strength to do this. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who's not silent. You are a God who speaks and gives us stories to inspire and stories to convict. And as we look at Micah and the Levite and the Danites in the story, we pray that you would fix our eyes upon your son and all that he's done for us in forgiving our sins, welcoming us, welcome, welcoming us into his embrace and giving us himself. Or maybe may we be content to dwell with you in your house, not seeking after our own illicit desires and using sin as a pragmatic tool to reach them, but instead following your paths and your way and listening and obeying our King. We pray for your spirit to encourage us in this, to give us the strength to do this, to equip us to do this. And it's in Christ's name that we ask. Amen.